Hey, what's up, everyone? This is the Dot Daddy Podcast, and I am here with Kat Teu from Inkheads out in Los Angeles, California. What's up, Kat? What's good, Joey? It's good to finally uh, be on here and uh, and talk to you live, man. It's awesome. I know I've been a big fan of your work for several years. I know a couple years ago, I messaged you and I said, Kat, you were one of the best artists in the country. Hands down, one of the best SMP artists in the country. I just didn't think you were getting the recognition you really deserve. But in my opinion, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the cat work. Oh, man, I appreciate that so much. It It's one thing to, um, you know, to hear that from your clients. You know, your clients will always think you're the bomb because obviously they wouldn't, you know, if if, if, if they're coming to you, they, they believe in your work, you know. But to hear it from other people in the industry, it's it means a lot. So I appreciate that, man. I'm honored. No problem. I'm just telling the truth. So let's get into it. Uh, where'd you grow up? Cause I know you're not from LA, right? <laughs> no. Um, so I was born in a little Island called Tonga, which is down by Fiji and Samoa. So I was born down there. And then when I was, I was adopted by my, uh, paternal grandparents. And then they took me to New Zealand when I was about four years old. My grandmother passed away when I was about five. And then my grandfather brought me to the States when I was six. And then from there, I, I was passed around from family member to family member, moved like 28 times before high school, went to like 14 different schools. So, but I mostly lived in California and in Hawaii. Yeah. So I ended up in Hawaii and then on Maui, on the island of Maui and stayed there for like 14 years and then finally uh, moved to California to pursue my wife. I had met my wife on this trip and we were, you know, talking back and forth. And finally I was like, all right, man, I need to I need to go all in and and uh, move to Cali and see what's cracking. So you said a bunch of things right there. I'm just going to pause so we can get back to it. So you were adopted by your paternal grandparents. So you were born in an island near Fiji and Fiji looks awesome. So I'm assuming the island you were from uh, is also beautiful as well. And so what was the reason for the adoption? Did something crazy happen or were you just trying, they were trying to give you a better life or you, you want to go into it? Yeah. So my, my mom and dad were, um, they, they were young and they, you know, in their early twenties and, um, basically it, it didn't work out. They just, they had me out of wedlock. My, my grandfather, my dad's dad, um, was a businessman, um, on the islands and was doing decent, you know? So he was like, Hey, you know, we want to take the baby and just, and adopt him. And so, and my dad, to be honest, was, he was just a young dude at the time, you know? And so he was, he was fine with that. Like, I think he was 22 or something like that and definitely not anywhere near ready being married and so yeah my grandparents uh adopted me but then like i said um after we moved to new zealand my my grandmother passed away my grandfather brought me to america and in our culture so in the tongan culture it's like you get you can be raised by anyone in the family you know and like family is like it's like god and then family, you know, like that's how it is in our culture. So like, there's not even a word for, for instance, cousin in my language, it's just brother or sister. So I have like 10,000 freaking, you know, siblings basically. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So your grandfather's like, I recognize my son. He's immature, whatever the case might be. We're going to step up. We're going to take cat bring him to the island. So then you're living in New Zealand for what, five years? And then your grandmother passes away? Yeah, it wasn't necessarily that my dad was was immature. I just don't think he was, 
he just wasn't ready to take a child yet, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's ex that's essentially what happened. My my grand yeah. my grand grandparents were like, hey, we'll adopt him, we'll take care of him, and so yeah, that's what happened. I know um, all about that, man. My uh, my mom had me when she was sixteen, and my wow. dad was my my dad wasn't around wow. like ever. And yeah. uh, basically, I was raised by my my grandmother as well. Wow. You know, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I know, I know a little bit about that, but I wasn't on a different island or anything like that. I just know from yeah. you know being here. Yeah, yeah. So, and then you said you were passed around fourteen different schools. How was that? Was it just not working out with each, uh, with each relative? Or so I mean, it wasn't that it wasn't working out. It's just that when I look back on it, that's a lot for a family to just like take a child especially when you already have children and it's like, Hey, you know, can you watch my grandson for six months to a year or maybe two years? You know, it's like, that's a lot to take on. And so for me, it, I didn't know any different. It was, I was just growing up. Right. Did it, did it suck? Oh yeah. It, it was not easy. I, you know, the, the 14 different schools it, and in my mind, it kind of blurs together when I think of different grades, you know, there's, and so that's, that's rough on a kid. What it did for me is that it uh, it taught me how to relate to anyone. Like I went to all white schools, all black schools, all Mexican, mixed schools, mostly Asian, rich schools, poor schools. And so I had to learn how to communicate with anyone like instantly. And so later on in life, it I looked back and I was like, man, thank you, God, that you gave me that you allowed me to have the journey that I, that I had, I wouldn't change it, to be honest. I wouldn't want to live it again because <laughs> it wasn't fun, but it gave me skills. It gave me life skills, you know, and it gave me perspective and it gave me, yeah, per, I think perspective is probably one of the most important uh, words that I could use to, to describe it because, because I was around a lot of people, um, a lot of different cultures and was just able to, observe, you know, just life from, from different POVs, different cultures. Yeah. What did you, I, and I get, I completely get what you mean when you say, now that you're an adult, you look back and you think, Hey, can you come watch this kid for six months, two years? Cause I think about that too. That's a big ask. That's a really big ask for someone. And it's a lot of responsibility and especially when they already have kids and, and obviously it costs money. And I, I assume where I don't know if, if they were going to be given any money for you to also, cause that plays a factor as well. So yeah, that's the thing in, in our culture. It's like my grandfather dro dropped me off. The first family I lived with was my, my uncle and aunt. They're actually my great uncle and aunt. So it was my grandfather's first cousin. And this is like a very, like, it, it's so outside of my culture. When I, when I look, step outside of my culture and I look at my story, I'm like, how, how does that even work? Like, how do you just ask someone to take care of your kid? Right. But in my culture, it's not weird. It's not out of the ordinary because we just do what we have to do for one another. Right. If family is absolutely everything. And so, and there's this thing of respect where literally in the family, it's mom, dad, and then the oldest sibling. And then if I'm one minute older than my twin brother, my twin brother has to listen to me simply because I'm older. And so my grandfather, who's older than his cousin, basically drops in and was like, hey, watch my grandson. <laughs> and he was oh, like, hey, copy. Even you know? after 18, they, they oh, still, yeah, they truly. Oh, yeah, yeah, 
yeah it's it's all the way till death like it's just that's how it is it's because it's it's like respect so god family respect that's how it that's how it flows in my culture you know you just have to there's a there's a word for it. it's called talahui in in my language it means to disrespect an elder and that could literally mean your your older sibling so yeah it's it, it's just cultural roots um run super deep i'm married to a latina and our wedding was just like she didn't know what to do with there was like we had this huge feast right um after our wedding where like 300 of my family members showed up and only her and her like parents and her siblings were there <laughs> so she the, everyone else was from my family and there was like 300 people there 30 different tables you know and at every table there was like a whole roasted pig it just surrounded by other like food for my culture and she walked in and saw everything and she was like i don't know what to do right now <laughs> she was just like she's like i thought we had culture like you guys put us to sleep you know yeah so all that to say in in my culture it's it's not like hey i'm gonna give you money watch my you know watch my grandson or watch my son or whatever it's like no okay, this is family. So we're going to do what we got to do to take care. I, a part of me respects that a lot. I, I like that philosophy, but I, you know, I didn't grow up in it. So I can't, I, I guess I've never been a part of it. Yeah. But I do, I do understand that, you know, I would do, you know, anything for my, for my brother and my sister. And I've done a lot. Now just imagine if you had like, like a hundred of them. <laughs> I'd have to say no a lot more. That's the only difference. <laughs> Where did you end? So you, Eventually got to Maui, beautiful island. I spent, uh, you know, uh, 16 days there. Um, and who did you end up staying with uh, until you were 14? Yeah, so my, my I finally ended up staying with my dad's sister, who uh, my aunt, um, Lolita, she's basically my mom. Um, okay. So part of my story is I never met my mom until I was like 29. I met her over the phone when I was 29 years old. So I had all these different parents or parental figures in my life you know but i was never the son and i was never the sibling i was always the cousin nephew or grandson that was probably the hardest part of it was just um des i had this deep desire to just belong to an immediate family right and so by the time i was 16 and a lot of my friends were doing what they do in high school you know like i had this deep desire to just like be married and be a dad I wanted the things that I didn't have, but I ended up with my my dad's my dad's sister. She was everything to me. She just passed uh, two years ago. Yeah, here. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I remember you posting about it and everything too, as well. What? How old are you, Kat? How old do you think I am with this? SMP? I don't want to guess. <laughs> no, guess. <laughs> look, look. Somebody. I some assume dude. we're about the same age. Uh, I'm 36. I, I, think I got you somewhere by a lot. Really. Yeah, this is the this is the beauty of SMP, man. I'm 43. Oh wow, yeah, you look great. You look freaking phenomenal. Good for you. Somebody the uh just like a couple months ago was like, "Are you are you 28?" I was like, "Oh God bless you, sir. I wish I was 28. If you met me before SMP, uh, you would definitely not guess at uh 28. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm 40, 43. Good for you. You're taking care of yourself. You said you were 14 when you left Maui to come. So, or you stayed there for 14 years, and then I guess you were 20. So Maui, I consider my home because it was the first place I lived for longer than three to six months, basically. And so I, I stayed in one. I, I went to one high school, 
which is mind blowing for me. I was, you know, because before high school, it was just like school after school after school after school. But I went to one high school. And so Maui was, I was the place that, or is the place that I consider home. Yeah. But I, we, my wife and I, you know, try to go back every year. Um, it's been hard since COVID. Um, but uh, that's, yeah, that's the place I, I call home. Let me, a little sidebar. How, how far away was uh, your family home? Your childhood home where you stayed all those years from those fires oh man thank you for asking about that so lahaina the lahaina fires is so i grew up in kihei when you fly in to maui you land in kahului and um which is on the kind of like it's in the center of the island kihei is in the south side and lahaina is on the west side so lahaina is about 45 minutes away i have friends that lost homes but i Fortunately for me, I don't know anyone personally who passed away, although I have friends of friends who passed away. But that was a devastating, that was a devastating time for me um, last year. I actually had a class set up that I was supposed to teach on Maui and I was super pumped for it. And the fires happened on Thursday and my class was supposed to be on Saturday. I was flying out like, I, and so literally, obviously I had to, I had to call them and you know, say, Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna cancel the class. I didn't give a crap about the class at the time. I, I spent like two days crying. Like it was so rough for me because like, that's my home and knowing my friends lost their homes and it was just, uh, yeah, that was, that was tough. And it doesn't seem like the U S government is doing that much to help out. At least from what I've seen, yeah, I think they gave them like 800 bucks per family or something. It I think the rock Oprah did more than the government. I, I'm not yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, that was a tough season. And I didn't even personally go through it, you know, but just uh, it was heartbreaking for me just talking to my friends, watching everyone post videos, watching like I grew up surfing in that town, you know, um, and going there all the time for, to, for food and for family, for church, for like all different types of things. And to see the devastation, I mean, it looked like a movie. It, when you look at those videos and you, and you watch how metal melted, I'm like, how did that happen? It happened so quickly, you know, it happened overnight. The 80% of the town burned to the ground. It's like, what? Like, how did that happen? And do they know how it started? I, I haven't seen anything on the origination of the fire. Did they know how it started yet? Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy dude. You know, there's so many conspiracies. Oh, there's a lot. The blue, there's the blue roofs, the blue roofs. Yeah, freaking laser, laser from the sky and all this stuff. And I'm just like, and people, and that it, to be honest, it really pissed me off when people were talking about it during, as it was happening and people were DMing me, people that I didn't even know were DMing me like, hey, do you think the laser's real? I'm like, bro, get the hell out of my DM. This is my freaking home. Don't don't hit me up with your stupid conspiracy theory. Like have some decency and care. Like if you're not going to give or pray, then get out of my DM and stop talking to me because I was like heartbroken for people whose lives were being shattered or losing their lives. My friend and her 70 something year old mom waited in the water for eight hours on a log because they couldn't make it back to land. Imagine being with your 70 year old mom, dude, like in the water. And just trying to keep her, you know, afloat yeah, and she's gotta exactly. keep her strength. Obviously they're not yeah. eating. That's insane. That so I'm insane. like, come on, dude, get out of here with your stupid theories. I hope none of the conspiracies are real because it that's horrible. You know, if right. that, you know what I mean? It, yeah, I saw I saw footage the day before somebody had posted footage the day before of 
crazy winds going through. There was like, there was a storm passing by the islands, right? So there were like 80 mile an hour plus winds that were hitting Lahaina side. And I saw um, footage of like these um, telephone poles and the wires were like three feet from the ground, two feet from the ground, like it had started sagging. And I'd never seen that before. So some of these poles were being pushed over. My guess is that one of those lines hit the ground sparked started a fire and that's how it happened that's that's you know what i mean it's a I, plausible theory right Very i highly doubt that nasa sent a laser from one of their satellites to, to freaking burn down i hope it's, not i hope not i don't even know what tell me about the blue roof thing tell me about that i don't even know the blue roof was what i saw because uh and i did see what the rock said on, on joe rogan podcast and oprah's thing so they were saying that these people who have because for people who don't know in Hawaii, not every million dollar home is like a big mansion. It could be like a ranch style little house that it's worth a million dollars because of the location it's in Maui. But so these real big mansions for the rich, ultra rich out there, they painted the roofs blue. And so the conspiracy is that they only burned around the blue homes. Like they didn't want those houses with blue roofs to burn down. And the theory goes that eventually, um, they're going to buy out all these people who've lived there, you know, for hundreds and thousands of years and, and the rich people are going to buy them out and use that land. I hope that's not true. I hope everybody gets their spot. You know, you pay for insurance, rebuild their home on their property like you're supposed to. It's so that's so stupid, because if you know, if you're from Maui and you understand like there, most of those blue roofs are um, metal. So I used to be a roofer. <laughs> So oh, sure. on, on Maui. Yeah. And so a lot of those blue roofs are metal corrugated roofs that are super cheap, like roofs on a lot of not so expensive homes. And maybe if they're, you're talking about like Japanese glazed tile blue roofs, but that's not a ton. So I think that's a really dumb theory. Hopefully it's not true. Hopefully none of it's true. Hopefully none of it's true. What matters to me is the people that passed away and the and the people the families that lost their homes that's what matters they lost everything everything freaking everything so i really do hope that they're taking care of like they i feel like they should make that process as easy as possible you know going through uh you know because there's gonna be a lot of legal crap they got to deal with uh and they should get their money so you moved to, so then which part of california did you go to when you moved over yeah so i was brought to uh, first to the Bay Area, Palo Alto area. And then I, but that was only for a little bit. And then I, I ended up in Sacramento. That Sacramento is where I stayed for the first two years. So that was first, second, and a little bit of third grade. So I was in Sac for a while. And then I moved around to Arizona and then the Bay Area and then back to Sacramento and all over Sacramento. So yeah, mostly, mostly Northern California. Okay. And uh, so when you get out of high school, do you immediately go to California or do you stay in Hawaii a little bit longer, try to go pro surfer? No. So after high school, I actually came back to Cali. Yeah, I went to I went to a, I went to a small Bible college, actually, in uh, Northern California, Scotts Valley. So after after high school, what what did you go to the Bible college for? So when I was 17, so I grew up in church. Right. And um my like Christianity is like a deep part of our culture ever since the missionaries came in the like 1700s or 1800s or whatever it was. And so our Tonga is a sovereign nation, but we are definitely a Christian nation. And so I grew up in the church. I was forced to go to church and I knew how to play the game very well. Um, and so I just did what I had to do 
because I knew that that's what was required of me in terms of, um, you know, if you didn't want to catch a beat down, you're going to go to church. <laughs> right. And so, so I did all of that growing up, but at the age of 17, one night at church, I had like an encounter with God that changed everything for me. That was like, it made God like a, a personal thing. Like it, it, it changed it from a religion to a relationship. And so I then wanted to know God for myself. I wanted to um, understand who he was for me and not because my uncle and aunt told me to go to church or my pastor don't, told me to go to church, but like, I really loved Jesus. And so I wanted to go to Bible college to like learn more about him and to make him known. That story is a lot longer and there's some crazy miracles that are intertwined with all of it. But I don't know if we have the time to get into all that. We can if you want to, but uh, that's that's why I was at Bible college. Put that on a, on a, on a different episode because I do, I'd love to know how it came to fruition for you. Unless you want, can you give a, or unless you want to give like a high level summary or are, is there any way you can condense it, do you think? In terms of like, how did I get there? Like, no, like uh, I guess you said it, it it became physical for you. I guess, oh, the uh, you're talking about the experience itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So June second, nineteen ninety seven. I was seventeen years old. How old were you? June second, nineteen. I was ten. Okay. Yeah. So I'm seven years old. Yeah. So I was seventeen. I was at church. I was playing the guitar, part of the worship team, right? So um, my pastor was giving an invitation for people to come to know God, anyone who wanted to like come into a relationship with Jesus. And now mind you, I've grown up, I'm familiar with the language. I understand the theology of it. But as my pastor is giving this invitation, suddenly I hear God for the first time in my life. And it's not an audible voice, right? It's not like James Earl Jones. It's, I compare it to a thought, a really loud thought in my chest. Like it, it sounded almost like my own voice, really loud in my chest and the words were you're not fooling me with these words came the deepest sense of unconditional love that i've ever felt in my life like it there was zero judgment with it there was zero like i'm disappointed in you i'm da 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 da, da this and that it was like it was just you're not fooling me and the sense that i got was like choose choose one or the other because i i was i gave off the impression oh and then i saw this vision <laughs> this is gonna get crazy i saw this vision of like a can of coke uh, like a can of coca-cola but inside of it was urine and i knew that that's how my life was because i was advertising something on the outside but i was something else on the inside something disgusting, something not real, something not lining up with, like I was part of the Christian club at school and I was you know, on the worship team at church and I did all the right things on Sunday in front of my pastor, in front of my uncle and aunt and all these different things. But behind the scenes, I was living a completely different life. It was not lining up with what scripture talks about. And the point that God was making was not that, it wasn't a judgmental thing. He was just saying, choose. Like he's saying, I respect authenticity and integrity. If you wanna do your thing, then do your thing, but please don't represent me or please don't act like you're living for me when you, we both know you're not fooling me. And dude, I, I fell on the ground and wept for like two hours because I, I just felt this unconditional love. I couldn't, I, I don't know how else to explain it, but I felt, I grew up, battling 
abandonment and rejection, having no father, no mother, no siblings. At this point, I hadn't met my mom yet, right? Like I don't, I don't meet her until I'm 29, but I'm like just a lost four-year-old kid searching for love. And I encountered this love in, in Jesus that changed everything for me, dude. Absolutely everything. And to this day, it's the deepest, most um, real thing in my life and the most important thing to me that I wouldn't trade anything for. It's the reason why I do the, my, I handle my business the way that I handle my business. It's the way, it's the reason why I love my wife the way I love my wife or treat people the way that I treat people. And I'm far from freaking perfect, man. You know, I, I have my problems and whatever. But the point is, is that I, when I encountered this love, it, uh, nothing else satiated it. I was on a bunch of different drugs at the time. I quit all of it, not because it was religious, but because I just didn't need it anymore. I would party hard from 13 to 17, wake up the next morning and be like, is this it? Like, what else is there? It was just empty. And the way the scriptures say, say, say it is like in the book of Ecclesiastes, it talks about eternity is in the heart of all, of all men. So if you can imagine a bottomless pit that's in your, in your heart, and most people were trying to put money, sex, drugs, success, family. We're trying to stuff it in that eternal hole. For me, nothing was big enough to fill that bottomless pit until I truly encountered God who's big enough to fill that eternal hole in my heart. It's that reason that like a year later, I was like, I'm going to go to Bible college. And that's a whole other story. But um, yeah, that's wow. why I pursued well, thank you for sharing that. So you're saying that because I had never had an experience like that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I find it very fascinating. I do know what it's like to feel like, you know, no one loves you or accepts you. I do yeah. know that feeling and it's it's not good, especially when you're a kid because you don't even know any better. No. Uh, as an adult, a lot of us, sometimes we can, our actions will make people not want to be around us, right? But as yeah. a kid, you just can almost expect to be loved by your parent or whoever the case might be. It is, it's a horrible feeling. So I'm, I'm really happy you were able to have that uh, epiphany, awakening, whatever you want to call it, and yeah. feel that eternal love, fill that void that you, you were describing. Um, that's, that's whatever works, which is able to, so after that moment, were you then like, I got to change my life? You start saying you're not going to do any drugs anymore. Is that when you start to take shit serious? Yeah, dude. I, I had a 1.4 GPA before that. Like that. So that happened summer of my junior year at a 1.4 GPA, bro. I went back to school next semester at a 4.0. Wow. Simply wow. because I was like, I'm going to honor my teachers. I'm going to do my homework. I'm just, I'm going to care about like what authority tells me, you know, like I just started taking what the scriptures teach seriously. And I was wanting to walk with God for me again, for myself, not because, and, 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 and dude, you could ask my friends at school. They're like, uh, bro, like who the hell are you? <laughs> like, why are you talking about Jesus all the time? And like, you know, I was a different person, completely different person. Uh, because I felt like I understood how bankrupt I was emotionally and spiritually for me, how I now encountered this incredible, I think the deepest need that every human has is to be, to know that they're unconditionally loved. That's my opinion, you know, but it's like, why do billionaires kill themselves? Why do, why is Jim Carrey saying, I wish everyone could could experience fame and fortune for one day so that they could see that it's not everything that it's cracked up to be. Why are 
the, the rich and famous constantly searching for something else and higher. And uh, to be honest, because I'm here in LA and I hear a lot of stories, they're constantly searching for something spiritually higher. And so for me, I, I recognize that like this love that I encountered, I have never encountered anything greater since. And so it's like the main puzzle piece in the center of my life where everything else, all the other puzzle pieces can connect to it. It's from that place that I could live and have my being. If you remove that from me, like I, I'm not sure what I would do. I would probably fall apart because I, I understood what it was to be broken and to be empty and to be without that knowledge. Um, and I wouldn't trade it. That's beautiful, man. That's, that's really. That's beautiful. I'm I'm glad you you had that experience. I really am, because I'm sure it's molded you uh, and set your trajectory for the rest of your life to the course of where you are right now. So, how old were you when you met your wife? I met her when I was 27. 27. Okay. And you yeah. said you were basically like kind of online talking for a few years. Well, we no, we were we were texting. We blowing up each other's. We had to change our our. Um, phone plans because we're constantly texting just like thousands and thousands of text messages all the time but i met her actually on a mission trip down here in, in southern california yeah we were we were both 27 and when <clears throat> when i met her dude my wife's freaking gorgeous and there are so many dudes trying to get at her at the time and i was like this chick is way out of my league and so i was like you know what i'm just gonna let me try to be best friends with her you know and so we're talking all the time you know either call on the phone or mostly texting but over the course of three years we basically became best friends and i finally there was the moment where like i knew i was the idiot dude in a rom-com movie where i was either gonna lose the girl or i had to make a like a major move and so finally i was like hey i like you what what can we do and she was like what the hell took you so long because <laughs> you know, apparently <laughs> she she had liked me for a while and i just did i was too insecure man you know i just didn't wow. think i had the goods i had hair then <laughs> so <laughs> i looked a lot different and but nevertheless um she she had a, a lot of guys that were you know trying to get at her at the time and i was just like i don't know i'll just I'm going to try to be her, be her best friend. And it, it, it ended off, ended up uh, paying off real, real nicely for me. And everybody wants to marry their best friend. True. Right? That's the, that's the goal. I think your strategy was smart. You said, you know, don't come <laughs> on strong uh, and just keep playing, you know, be the friend. Yeah. And it worked out in your favor. Yeah. Yeah. And but I think if I had to do it over again, I just would have been honest, more honest with her in the beginning, you know, or like, a lot earlier, I would say. Do you think it would have still worked out though? I think so. Would, okay. I think so. I, I mean, the timing of everything, looking back at it, worked out the way it, sh it should have. But I mean, if, if I was given another chance, I don't know that I would have waited so long to just be honest with her. Okay. What, uh, what kind of work did you do before you got into, you said you did some roofing, but what else did you do? Are you familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality test? Of course. I'm an ENFJ. I'm an ENFP. Okay. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're very close. Yeah. Yeah. Except you have a lot more order than I do, right? Like I'm more like free flow. Like if you read the profile of an ENFP, they, it says they can go, they can have many careers in their life. Dude, I have done everything. I mean, worked in restaurants, 
Um, I was a roofer. I did all different styles of construction um, from electrical to framing to flooring. Um, and then I dabbled in real estate for a while. And then I was in, get this one. I was in aerospace engineering for seven and a half years. Yeah. How the hell, you don't just fall into that. How does that happen? I just <laughs> happened to get in there. Yeah. <laughs> There's that. No. So, oh my gosh, what a crazy story that was. Um, my wife's cousin is a uh, is computer computer engineer and he was a part of um this this company that wrote maintenance manuals for in-flight in entertainment systems and i was like i was just hanging out with him one day he basically just out of the blue he's like hey man what are you doing for work right now and i was just like oh man i'm struggling trying to do real estate or whatever and it's like not working out he's like man you should try and get you know he's like i can help you get a a spot in in our company just like a you know, just to help you out like a starter spot or whatever. And I was like, yeah, man, like I'm not a prideful dude. I was like, I'll try anything. It doesn't matter. I just, you know, I want to pay my bills and feed my family. Long story short, I, he ended up getting me a position there at the company and little by little, I was able to work my way up to where by the time I left, I, I had taken over the spot of one of the main engineers there. It w meaning. I freed him up to do other stuff. By the time I left, I had uh, trained this young dude who had just graduated with an aerospace engineer degree, trained him for like eight months to take over my position. So I'm super, I'm super proud of that because I came into the industry not understanding anything. There's like 10,000 freaking acronyms in aerospace. And so the first day I'm sitting there on, on the, like sit, sitting in front of my computer, knowing nothing. And this guy walks up next to me and he's like speaking to another guy at the next desk. And he's just like, Hey, I need all the PCBs for every LRU on this OMM. And I need them by the end of day. And I was like, what the hell did this guy just say? Like, what, what is he talking about? And what's crazy is that just over the first two years was kind of like my introduction to that whole world, learning how to read like Airbus and Boeing engineering drawings, putting them together for our engineers. What happened is I, I just started to learn just by being around, being around it, just understand the language, understand how to, how to do what they were doing. And, you know, obviously I'm, you have to be, you have to go to school to become an engineer, but they created a position for me called engineering analyst. And so my main job was tracing power from, you know, when you sit down on a plane, you have your smart display, right? So tracing power from the display back to the panel on the plane and documenting that into our system so that these um, maintenance manuals could be um, produced that were necessary by from like FAA, like regulations in order for planes to even take off, they have to have certain manuals on the plane. And so um, my, that was my job. My job was like scouring Airbus and Boeing engineering drawings all day long, and then transferring that to our database. <laughs> that is a time consuming and I'm assuming not very exciting job. No, the exciting part for me was learning it because I was like, dude, they, they created a position for me called, called engineering analyst again, because I wasn't an engineer and I was super proud of the fact that I learned this really hard thing, man. It, it was like learning Chinese, dude, you know, just this 
completely foreign thing I had no grid for, but I stuck with it. And, um, you know, that, and I've also been doing uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu for a lot of like last 18 years, besides Jiu Jitsu, that's the most, that's the thing I'm most proud of is going into that job and not giving up and pressing through this hard, like thing <laughs> coming out the other end feeling like wow i i did it and they didn't they didn't fire me because i was an idiot <laughs> i know all about that i know all about that it's yeah. so weird i have another thing in common with you where i also worked at a geotechnical engineering firm for a couple of oh, years yeah. and i didn't have a fucking clue what was going on and it, i know what you mean when it's like it can be boring but it's fun learning it and when you start to figure shit out you're like oh that makes sense now yeah so what, why did you end up like, I'm sure you had to have contemplated in your head 50 times, you know, should I just go to school to be an engineer, uh, to advance my career? I like this stuff. What ultimately deterred you? No, I, I knew that, um, anything that I needed to learn for the job that I was doing, like I could tap into people around me. This is the beauty of community in that, in, in this situations that it's, it's work community right like so i placed myself around the guys that i knew i could learn from and i like every day when i was actually working to get the position of engineering analyst because i started out as document control which is basically printing <laughs> engineering drawings that's pretty much it and then placing them in order learning how to read the bomb the bill of materials so that you could you, you could put them in the correct order just placing myself around the the right people in order to learn to to move up i knew that i could do that and so i would stay after work like work would end at you know 3 30 and like luis he was this he was he was like one of the like main engineers there he'd be walking out and be like hey luis show me this real quick can you show me on your way out can you show me this and he would take like five minutes to show me something on the computer and then i would just sit there for five six hours and work it and learn it and like really understand it um, and then the next day I'd ask him a different question. I did that for months until I basically learned his job. <laughs> wow. Wow. And then I went to my manager. I was like, Hey, I can do this. And he was like, really? Cause they were trying to hire someone to take Luis's spot so that he could do other things. It was never working. They couldn't find someone that would, was a good fit for the company. And so when, when my, when the CEO found out that I learned how to do it, she was like, what? And she was so pumped. She gave me this huge raise and sent me and my wife to Maui for a week, fully paid. Like she, she, it, she was so stoked. Shut up. That's so cool. Yeah. So she gave the, you a vacation and a pay she gave me a vacation. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause she, she just saw initiative, you know, and she saw like, uh, you know, and she was thankful. She was thankful cause I already understood the, the company culture. And also let's be real. She didn't have to pay as much for an actual engineer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So even, yeah. Like I had a nice pay bump but it definitely wasn't you know what it would have been had i had um, a degree okay and that's very interesting and that's awesome you were you took initiative took on projects you kept learning you pushed yourself you moved up no experience and you taught self-taught yourself basically i mean they teach you but then you self-taught yourself why didn't you stick with it smp so really yeah oh so i skipped one one career before engineering i was i tattooed for five and a half years oh shit real like real tattoos yeah mm -hmm. normal tattoos yeah <laughs> and so um towards the end of my season at this company at the engineering company i was looking for something to 
you know, to fix my bald problem. <laughs> and then I stumbled upon SMP and it was my wife actually who saw that, uh, that you could get certified in it. She was like, Hey, you should look at getting this done. And so she found Jeff's page and she's like, Hey, this guy's going to be training here in LA. You should, you know, look at taking this class. And I was like, yeah, let's do this. So I was still working at my other company and I took the class and basically it was like a nine month overlap where finally came to the point where I was like, because of COVID, like they started had, they, they, they started letting people go. And so me and a bunch of other people got let go. Literally the day after I got let go, Jeff hit me up and was like, Hey man, you want to, you want to come work with me in my LA shop? I was like, yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, it was just like perfect. I call it God timing, you know, it's perfect. And so wow. that's, yeah, that's how I transitioned over. So let, let's back up there. So did your wife tells you about SMP? You researched. No, I you, I found it. I I okay. think. Did you get it done, or did you do training first? No, no, no. I, I I got training first. We only had enough money to do one or the other, and I was like, I'm gonna invest in me. I'm gonna invest in my skills because I know that if I learn how to do it, I can get it done later. You know, and yeah. like, and so yeah, that's what I did. So took the class, and I was doing all these you know freebies and models for essentially nine months. Um, and I was posting and Jeff would see my stuff and he basically hit me up. He's like, bro, you're getting good. Cause he, that guy trains a lot of people, you know, and, um, a lot of people. And I'm saying he, I'm, I might be the only student he ever hired, but I think there was another girl before me that, that like he, to come work in his shop. And this yes. was not when he was in, cause he was in Chicago, right? For a little bit. And this is his LA shop. His LA shop. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, which I ended up being like the, kind of the manager and like the point artist there. Uh, he brought on another girl after me, but for the most part, I, I kind of ran the shop cause he was traveling a bunch. And so, you know, if, um, he, let's say needed a, a second or third session done on one of his clients, he would just send them to me, you know, but for the most part, I was, um, doing all my own clients at that point at his shop. Now, was he bringing in the leads or did you have to do that yourself? That was him. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So now, so now it's, it's me speaking of which I don't think I've, uh, <laughs> officially even talked about this yet, but, um, as of last November, I said, thank you to Jeff. Him and I are, are great friends by the way, still. Um, but I, I just told him, Hey man, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, just going on my own and get my own little shop. And so I started Inkheads um, late last, late last year. And so I'm congratulations. No thank, you. Awesome. thank you. Very, 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 very cool. So I'm no longer with Picasso, even though I love that guy, man, Jeff is a brother to me and I owe everything in the, in my career to him and leaders Academy, uh, you know, which also allowed me to become a, a master trainer under them. But, um, yeah, it was just, it just felt like it was, it was time for me to do that, you know? And so, and he was super gracious. He was like, man, good for you. I'm happy for you. And so, yeah. That's what I love to hear. I love to hear that he's happy for you moving on. Yeah. He's a good dude. So where's your new shop at? So my new shop is in Santa Monica. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wilshire and sixth street in Santa Monica. It's uh, right next to the third street promenade. So really close to the ocean. Um, so it's really cool. Yeah, it's tiny. I was it's just in Santa Monica. I was just there in September. My friend lives over there. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, got engaged on the Santa Monica Pier. No way. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm right there. 
um, near the ocean and I love it. My, my shop is so tiny. It's, it's nothing like the spot that I, you know, that we had with Picasso, that studio that we had over there on Highland was, oh my gosh, it there's like there, a there's, warehouse. Oh my gosh. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Yeah. It had the, the, the coolest vibe. But it was huge. It was like, yeah, huge ceilings, right? Like a Multi warehouse yeah. type. Yeah. yeah. Multiple, yeah. multiple levels. You got to start somewhere, man. When, when you get your own place, you got to start somewhere. Um, and guess what? Now you're going to have really high end clientele. I mean, Santa Monica is where the money's at. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. And so, um, you know, I'm in this little shoe box, but it's my, it's my shoe box. <laughs> yeah. So are, do you still use all ghost products? Yeah. I'm still, still sponsored by ghost. Yeah. And so, yeah, for the most part, I, I love ghost. Um, I've got no hate towards other pigments. It's just what I've known and what I've used. And I've tried a few other ones, but, um, but I, I'm very used to ghost, you know? And so, and they've been real good to me. They've been a great sponsor. Shout out to what ghost. Shout to ghost. <laughs> I've used ghost by the way. It is good. It is good. I even use their neutralizer. I dude, their neutralizer. I will say this, this is a, this is, me as an artist, not, um, not me as a sponsored ghost guy, right? Mm -hmm. As an artist, I use ghost, I, ghost neutralizer with every freaking, like every procedure that I do because it neutralize like on, on lighter skin, it neutralizes the blues and on darker skin, it neutralizes the greens, right? So you don't, you don't want pigment turning green on dark skin and you don't want it turning blue on lighter skin. And I've just learned that, Hey, you, you have to you have to neutralize it using straight black for me is no longer something that i do um it's just i i don't want that coloring i agree and you should always add the and obviously add the water add more distilled water uh to but yeah the straight black that's a no-no if you're listening if you've made it this far in the podcast people do not just use straight black do not do it. <laughs> Please, for the love of god <laughs> Add the water. So let me ask you this. So uh, now that we're in the SMP conversation, I just want to recap on that. So you're with Jeff. So I guess how long total were you with uh, Picasso, Jeff? What is the name of his shop? I don't know what the name. It's just uh, Picasso SMP or Picasso Scout Micropigmentation. So how long were you with them for total, do you think? So um, from from 2020 until last year in November. Wow. So solid three years. Yeah. And in the beginning you were doing it where out of like your house, uh, apartment or something before you got hired on? No. So, uh, there was a, um, or there is a, uh, like a permanent makeup salon that's here in Santa Monica that they, they do like a $50, like a, a rental fee. So like you could basically rent out a chair, right? It's super professional looking spot. And basically every time I would go in, it would be 50 bucks. And so I would just kind of put that on my, my models, you know, be like, Hey, I'm doing this like $5,000 procedure. You take care of this, um, $50 fee, then that would, you know, then I'll do the procedure for free basically. And that's a, if you're listening right now and you're a new artist, I just dropped a gem on you because you don't want to be doing a three to $5,000 procedure in your garage. It's just, it's not a good look. And so find, do what I did, find a, you know, a local P PMU shop that 
will rent out a seat that looks professional. So you could, you, it's professional for your models and your clients that you're doing freebies for, but also you could take pictures that is in a professional space and that's going to help you grow a lot quicker. Um, because you can like, I used to tattoo and out of my house, but tattooing and SP are com two completely different things in the eyes of the world. Although technically we know <laughs> it's essentially the same thing, essentially the same materials and machines and all of that stuff. But I'm in terms of, you know, SMP is permanent makeup and tattooing is just not seen as the same level. And so that's why we get to charge the higher prices, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, well, I think it's good that you're saying it, to be honest. Um, it's also people are accepting the risk, right? That's also why it's expensive. It is, it looks easy. Like everyone you've trained, I've trained people who see it from, it looks easy. So you're just making dots. Dot, 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 dot. It's once you're in there, it's way more difficult, way more. Cause it's all about keeping the exact pressure, the same pressure. Boom, boom, boom. So do you think you're, um, five, six years of tattooing before this helped you? Oh, 100%. I, that was a cheat code, man. Because I was I was used to skin. I was used to the three point stretch, right? Like stretching the skin. Um, I was used to the machine. I was used to the, the pigment. It wasn't hard for me to like, you know, I wasn't nervous, basically. I wasn't nervous about like doing my first procedure because it was like, this is the same thing. I'm just using, I'm, the technique is different, right? In tattooing, you're pulling lines or shading, whip shading or circular shading with the different needle configuration. SMP is just the same machine, same needles. You're just dotting. Yep. Yep. And then a different pattern, right? But what I will say, but with uh, SMP, everything's freehand for the most part, right? Yeah. We're not really tracing anything. We don't. I, at least yeah. I well, don't. some, some, there are, there are like, OG dudes out there who they'll freehand draw a stencil onto a, a client. You know, I never did that. I always printed out my stencils and made sure that it was like, you know, perfectly placed on the skin and then, and then traced it, you know, but there, there are some super good artists out there who, who will freehand and they take kind of pride in that. Yeah. I just w wasn't willing to risk that. Oh, I get it. <laughs> I get it. So you break away uh, from Jeff. Congratulations. You have Inkheads now in Santa Monica, California, which is mm -hmm. a great location. Who cares that it's a little smaller? You'll move up when the time is ready. What is, and, but the reason you're able to do this is because you're so talented. And one of the things that I've noticed is your natural hairlines are phenomenal. How do you approach the natural hairline? Are you starting up higher and then kind of moving down second session, third session? Are you doing the triangles, mountains, whatever you want to call them? How, how do you approach it? Thank you, by the way. I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, my natural hairlines, um, that's, you know, I learned everything from Jeff. Um, Jeff was the guy that when I, when I first found SMP, I'm not going to say who I, <laughs> who it was that I found, but I showed it to my wife and she was like, no, <laughs> she, she looked at it and she was like, that does not look good. And thinking back on it, when I look 
back at, at the photo that I showed her, I'm like, oh my God, what was I thinking? But I was thinking as a bald guy. I wasn't thinking as an artist, right? I was like, oh, they can do something about it. And so it was like, okay, so- I'll take look. anything. Yeah, I was like, take anything. <laughs> exactly. And, but thank God my wife has really high standards. <laughs> and so she was like, hell no, no, you're not getting this done. Literally like, I think it was like six months later, she walks up to me and she's like, hey, check this check this guy's workout. And she's like, look how natural it looks. And I'm like, whoa, what, who is this? And it was Jeff. And so Jeff is the one that schooled me on the natural hairline. And, and essentially our approach is you, you see, you know, what's funny to me and I'll, I'll throw this out there is that you'll see new artists who draw like the, they'll have the bottom hairline, but then they, they'll have the one inch dotted hairline above or the one inch dotted line above that and then they do like a edge up and i'm like that's not the point <laughs> that's not the point of having the one inch dotted line above right the whole but point it looks cool on instagram it looks great on instagram right but for the the you know the client who doesn't know it's completely pointless to have that when you're doing an edge up you know because the point of that one inch is to start your fade right and you can change that from uh, i'll drop a little secret that I use for, so for me, I don't like doing hard lines. If, if someone comes to me and they want, um, an edge up, I'll talk them into what I call a soft edge up, which is basically like a natural hairline and an edge up had a baby. And so I'll, I'll take my one inch and I'll drop it down to like a quarter inch. And so that way it's soft and broken up. And, um, I have a, you know, examples on my Instagram, but like, to me, it looks way more natural than the straight dots right next to each other. Um, and, and that's not going to be age appropriate when you're like 70, you know, I completely agree with you in everything you just said. And the, my problem is I'll try to talk them out of it, but some people are very adamant. They're like, I don't care. I want the straight line edge up. I'm like, okay. If that's what you want to do. I have one rule, dude. And that is if you're a white guy and you want to edge up, you're not getting it from me. I just, <laughs> I just do it. Man. I just won't do it because I have. Like, it I'm definitely not, doesn't look as good. It no, definitely I'm just not going to feel good. good about myself because usually it's younger, younger dudes who want it. Right. And I'm like, you, you're thinking of it like a. You're 25, bro. Yeah. You're 25 <laughs> and you're thinking of it like a haircut. This is not a haircut. Right. You, the point of this is to make it look like you woke up in the morning, shaved your head and went to work. Not like you went to your barber and, and got edged up, right? That's a completely different thing. And you will not want this when you're, you know, 65, you will not want this. You're not going to want to look like you just came from the club and you're trying to hang out with your grandson. Like, yeah. trust me. <laughs> right? if, if you're now, if you're Puerto Rican or black, it, it'll fit you into your older age. But I'm just saying, and I'm not a racist dude. I'm just saying like for Caucasian guys, I'm going to shut you down immediately if you ask me for an edge up. I think that's a very reasonable concern, Kat. <laughs> it's a very reasonable because at, at minimum, give your hard suggestion. Tell them <laughs> yeah. examples. You know, you should yeah. be able to talk them out. Uh, I completely agree with that. And I, I call it, uh, I like how you said it, made a baby. I call it the, uh, the natural straight hairline. There you go. <laughs> Same thing. And it, you'll, I'll even use a smaller needle right below it if I have to, you know, yeah. to give that softer look. I'll go down to the yeah. L4 or something. 
Now you used to, so did you do a lot of the traveling when those guys were out? You know, they're in a different country. I feel like every two weeks, I don't, I can't keep up with Jeff. I mean, he's killing it and uh, Masood and all them guys. Uh, yeah. Ivan, I think even goes out there a lot too. Did you, yeah. did you ever go with them or did, did you just do the classes in LA? Yeah. Last year it really opened up for me internationally. I started, um, I went with Jeff and, um, and Ivan, we did a class in Barcelona and then that opened up um, Serbia for me in early last year. And then I did a class with Jeff in, Can in uh, Canada. And then um, after Serbia, I did a, a class with Jeff in Croatia. And then last year in December, I did a class by myself in Vietnam. And so wow. this year I have, um, I have Greece. As I have Athens coming up, Dubai, and Croatia, Slovenia, um, a few other countries that just haven't been locked in yet. Let me ask you this. How does your wife feel about when you go? Does she come with you? No, I wish, man. I wish. And it's, it's, it's hard because we have two little fur babies right now. They're these 10-pound little mulchy poos, Maltese chihuahua poodles. There are, there are kids and, um, it's hard to find a sitter for them. You know, like we, we spoil the crap out of them. So, um, it's just, it's just hard. Yeah. It's hard to kind of work that up, but also this, the traveling for work to me, it's, it's simply that it's work, man. You're like, on a mission. I'm not on the, on out in these countries, like living my best life. That's not me. Like there, you know, certain people, if I'm going to a different country, I'm flying in to to teach a class, to love on people, and to go home. I'm not there to spend money. I'm there to make money for my family. That's right. and get, I love and get, that. That's it. You know. So I'm not. It's not a vacation, dude. When I went to Serbia, I flew into Nikolai Tesla Airport, <laughs> went straight to my uh, hotel, spent like four or five days there teaching. I walked like two blocks one night to grab some food mostly ate at the hotel when it was done i got in a taxi went back to the nikolai tesla airport and flew home i didn't wow. see jack in, i didn't see jack in serbia and people were like you went all the way to serbia and didn't see anything i was like no dude i'm trying to build my business i'm not trying to spend all the money i make yeah yeah you know there there'll come a time for that and they'll, they'll you know hopefully one day i'll have like you know inkheads all over the world and then i can just take my wife and travel but this is not the time this is the building. Yeah, plan. I think that's a, exactly what you should do because you can get caught up doing something you shouldn't do or just spending money where you shouldn't. and Or even, you know, different countries have different rules. You can get yourself in trouble as well. You know, yeah. Serbia, I think, is uh, I don't know how they like feel about Americans too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know they're tough. They're tough people over there. Je to be able to do all these trainings, I mean, he must have the best SEO company in the world. And I know it's not one of the people messaging everyone listening saying, I can get you 20 leads for $45 and blah, 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 blah. I don't know if you get those. Uh, yeah, but I do. I still get them. And nothing. And I've, I've talked about this many times. No offense to the people who are hustling. They're trying to get their, you know. They're trying to get new clients so you could do more marketing for it. It's just I've had a strategy that's been working for me for a number of years. So I'm just not really looking to sign on anyone new uh, because it's work, this is what works for me. Yeah. I would say a lot of, um, in my estimation, 
a lot of what opens up the doors for Jeff is he's got a great following. So he's got, I don't know, like almost 50,000 50, followers. And a lot of those people are people in the industry worldwide. And so people see what he's doing. People see him um, traveling and teaching. And so that, it just opens up doors. I just started traveling last year, you know, and it's already opened up doors for me, you know, um, in terms of, of people inquiring like, hey, could you come teach and this and that. And so, and I'm nowhere near, I have like 1%, you know, I, I got like 4,000 followers. It's like nothing. But uh, Jeff has a really wide reach. And I'll say this, he's really good at um, his personal brand. You know what I mean? Like, I will say, dude, one thing I respect about you is you have, you're so not afraid to be who you are. And like, you stand out from the crowd, like of where most S&P artists to me, they come from like one of two camps, S&P artists who are trying to be millionaires. And then there's the other guys who are just kind of focusing on their work. Like you're separate and you're your own like hilarious dude. And I just love, first of all, congratulations on your on your, you know, your business, your podcast, like all of this stuff, man. And it's just, I love that you are your own person, you know, which is thank you because you definitely stand out from the crowd for sure. And I love that about you. Um, and I always have, and, but I think that within the camp that Jeff falls into, he's really good. Like I just, I love his aesthetic. He has very high standards for how like his videos look and things like that. And so all of that adds to when um, there are people wanting to bring in trainers, they find him, you know, and um, I don't know that it's necessarily SEO. Maybe it is, maybe, but I know that um, he's got. So you think it's a lot of like networking connections? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that makes sense. And I think that's even, that's way stronger than SEO. That's way strong. You know, you already know, hey, I own a shop in Japan and we're looking to, you know, mm -hmm. get your knowledge, come train here. We'll bring in models. We'll bring in all these people. We'll pay you. Yeah. That makes sense. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cause like the only way that international training opened up for me was because I did the class in Barcelona and I, one of the students was a was a guy from Croatia who owns a PMU shop with his wife. And he was like, hey, can you come teach a class in Serbia? And I was like, sure. I went there. That opened up um, Vietnam. That opened, you know? So it's like, and that was just me and my tiny little world last year. Like Jeff's been doing this for a lot longer with a lot bigger reach. And he's known by a lot more people. So it's a snowball effect once you get to a certain level, I think. And, um, and he's there, you know? Me, I know that I have the goods, like in terms of I know how to train and I know how to do the procedure. It's just a matter of just um, get putting myself out there more and and getting known. And so that's that's what I'm working on right now is just trying to build that. You know, I hope that didn't come off arrogantly in any way. I'm just I'm very. Self no, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't at all. I'm just very self honest. I'm very self-aware. I know what I'm good at and I know what I suck at. I know what I like. Um, Jiu-Jitsu has taught me that. Like there's different parts of your game that you have to work on and each part of your game can constantly grow, you know, but I, when looking at my abilities in SMP, like I'm very confident with how I teach and how I do the procedure where I lack is marketing. And so my never ending battle, my never ending battle is marketing. <laughs> Seriously. But, 
man, but you, I mean, even doing this, this podcast is, is a huge, you know, huge way to like kind of up that marketing game. Right. Because that definitely helps. Right. That's all part of my master plan. Cat. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. So I, obviously I wanted to do a podcast. I thought about it for many years. I thought about starting the podcast, but I was like, you need the means. I need somebody to edit, you know, that's cost money, time, all that sort of thing. But then I was like, you know what? I want to do in-person and virtual podcast because this will also open up maybe i can't not everybody's bald or not everybody wants to talk about smp right like mm -hmm. you do and i do that's all we live it but let's say i get in here a guy who does comic books i had a comic book guy in here i had a neurologist in here oh wow um, and so I, I had a guy from squid games who you know and i have all these different people and so uh, business owners then they'll talk about the podcast and then eventually it comes back to SMP because oh. we're still not mainstream. Dude, I keep saying, man, it, whenever I, I teach a class, I, I always say you are getting into SMP at the perfect time. And it's not like a it's not like a fake thing. I really believe it because no one knows what SMP is. And yeah. the moment that The Rock walks into my studio and I do his... <laughs> <laughs> or like Joe Rogan, you know, or something. one of these guys who, who uh, is going to turn around and actually be um, open about it, like some major celebrity, it's game over for every single one of us who are actually good at S&P. Oh my God. I, I, I said that I don't care who does the, as long as they're a good artist, The Rock, Rogan, Jason Statham, somebody who will openly talk about it. It's going to blow everybody up. Seriously, right. it's going right. to be because it's like right now learning SMP, buying Bitcoin in 2009, dude, seriously, because everyone knows about eyebrows and lips and, you know, all the different PMU things. But like to this day, when I when people ask me what I do and I tell them, they're like, that's a thing <laughs> like that's really. And then the next question is, do you have it? <laughs> so no, you're right. I love that analogy. It's just like Bitcoin, because. I hope you're right. I do just like Bitcoin. I hope it keeps going up. Uh, I am a Bitcoin holder, guilty, uh, Ethereum and all that. But you're right, because as this gets more mainstream, because some people think, is it too saturated? I don't think it is. I don't think it, I think eventually people are just going to have to choose. Yeah. It, too saturated. You mean in terms of like the artists and people being trained? Yeah, the number of artists. Let me ask you about this real quick. Yeah. In all honesty, I'm not nothing against large classes. I did a large class with Jeff. Okay. I went to the not the Scout Show. Was it the Scout Show? What does he call it? The SMP Expo, the first one in Arizona. I took it, I took it with D Black and uh and all those guys. And it, and I had already trained with Jarrell. I'm a Jarrell guy yeah. and uh Dan Nuremberg and all those guys. And I saw he did a different technique on his on the natural hairline. And I did learn something from it. And I did enjoy it. However, I already had years of experience and, and all this stuff. To me, large classes are good introductory classes, I would say. But to go from a large class, let's say there's 20, 25 people, there's five instructors or three instructors. I just don't know if the people would be truly ready to work on their own. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a great question. Jeff and I, I think the largest class I've done was with Jeff in Canada. We had 21 students and it was just the two of us. And I think I, I think we had seven models that day and I worked on like all seven of them. <laughs> it's like, that's a lot. It was crazy, man. Um, 
I don't recommend that. I'm confident that I could do that again. I don't prefer classes, you know, like if I'm the only one teaching, like probably 10 people is solid. Like smaller amounts is, is even better because you get more personal personal time. Get more I, FaceTime with the instructor. More FaceTime, right. yeah. I I'm confident in my teaching style that I'm able to because teaching SMP wasn't the first thing that I taught. Like I've, mm-hmm. I've taught many different things. I, I like, I enjoy teaching because for me, teaching is learning because someone will ask a question, for instance, in, in jujitsu, someone asks, Hey, how do you do this? How do you transition from rear naked choke to armbar? It's like, Oh, let me think about it. Okay. I put my right hand on the neck and then I underhook with the left and you have to kind of step-by-step talk about your process and maybe a process that you never actually verbalized before, but now you're having to explain it to a student and as you're explaining it, you're reinforcing it in your brain, but also maybe seeing a step that you didn't put words to before. And so you learn. And so for me, I the reason I love teaching is because I actually love learning. And so I I feel like I get better as an artist every time I teach. I agree. I, I love that you said that. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, go, sorry, going back to your question, like obviously – it's always better to to have more one-on-one time with the students, right? And at the end of the day, it's a three-day class. So I always kind of start my classes by saying, hey, this is not a class that you, the point of this class is not so that you could start your business on day four. That's not the point of the class. The point of the class is for me to give you all the tools for you to practice in order to three, six, nine months down the road, you can start your business because you have to get to a level where you're able to actually charge people money for this. But it's I'm giving you the tools to start your journey on teaching yourself, basically, because you're going to be practicing on melons. You're going to be doing freebies on on uh, models, you know, all all that stuff like paying your dues. The students that turn around and just immediately start companies, it's a sketchy thing to me, you know, and I never advise it. I agree. I agree. I always say you got to you got to take some time and maybe you're a quick learner. It's it's kind of up to you, right? Like if you if your work is looking stellar immediately, then sh- man, I'm not a hater. Get after it. Go get it done. Start your business. Do what you, do what you got to do. But let's be real. This is not something you get good at overnight. You, you're going to have to do you're going to get sick of honeydew melons, you know, <laughs> you're going to you're going to have to do some freebies where it's may not look amazing at first, but it's part of the, everybody's got, everybody's got to go through that. Everybody's got to go through it. Now, those are really good points. Those are really good points. Uh, And I agree with you. You're It's not day four, start your business, start charging money. It's really start practicing, start practicing. And I like how you said you got to teach yourself because that's kind of how I felt. I think a lot of people, because after you're the class, when it's you one-on-one with a person who's trusting you, you're basically teaching yourself. You are, you know, you are. Yeah, you absolutely are. And it's because here's the thing. This is a class. This is a introductory class. It's not a, it's not an internship and an internship is completely different where you have my first days working with Jeff. uh, I would say probably the first three to four months was kind of like an internship where he was just like, he would literally stand over me and he'd be like, Nope. <laughs> I'm like working on client. I love that guy, but he's like, 
he's very like a Ginsu knife, you know, it's just, just very straightforward. And, uh, you'd be like, Nope, you're doing that wrong. Be like, okay. You know, maybe we can talk about that after my client leaves, <laughs> but he, he caused me to get really good, really fast. And then I would watch him while he's working. So I'd be watching him every day. I'd show up at the shop, even if I didn't have a client and I'd just watch him work and I'd ask him questions and I was just a sponge. And so that was different. I got a different level of learning from Jeff than anybody else who, who has, who takes a three-day class. Of course. Oh yeah. I mean, you were basically a mentorship. Yeah. That was a true mentorship, you know, uh, that was By true... one of the best in the world. Yeah. And so, you know, it, for me that that's, that's why I, I have the career that I have now is because of that time that I spent with him, you know, and was able to ask him all the questions and, and, and learn and learn how to run the business, man. I mean, I only am able to, to do like to, to have my shop now because of everything that I learned, basically answering the calls, booking clients, all the behind the scenes stuff that you have to learn as a, as a business owner, you know, I got to kind of test run it first by just being the guy that helps him do it, you know? Yeah. Except now your money's on the line. Now my money's on the line. Now it's my, mar now it's my marketing uh, dollars, right? The never ending battle, man. It is a never ending battle. And I appreciate everything you said about uh, my marketing and, and standing out from the crowd. I, I really, I just, I embarrass myself a lot, you know, but I'm just like, whatever. I think it's funny or I think it might work. And I'm like, if I look stupid, I look stupid. I, w people are still going to come to me. You know, that's how I kind of how I think of it, man. I wouldn't I wouldn't even say I wouldn't even label it as embarrassing yourself. I would label I would call it just being authentic, man. The one thing that I've learned in life is that the number one quality that I love in any person, male or female, is humility. Humility is the most underrated quality, I think, because anybody can puff up their chest and act like they're one thing. Right. And martial arts will teach you real quick, man. It, you can't judge like you can't judge a book by its cover. Exactly. <laughs> like, man, doing jujitsu, like I, there's dudes who walk in the into the school and they're like 300 pounds. And I'll freaking choke that dude out like quick. And then some skinny little 130 pound twerp walks in, straps on his tattered black belt and will just destroy me. And I'm like, what just happened? Like. <laughs> And so, but there's a humility that the little guy had that the big guy didn't have because the big guy thought like I'm big and strong and buff and I can, you know, handle this, this dude. And he gets worked for me, seeing, um, humility in people, uh, humility allows you to be vulnerable. And when people are vulnerable, it gives courage to other people to also be vulnerable and, and vulnerability is such a beautiful, refreshing thing in this age of Instagram and Facebook, where everyone, you don't know what's real and what's not, what's AI generated and what's, are you even real? Is this like, am I talking to your free, like, yeah. I'm pretty sure I saw a glitch. This, I'm sure you're AI generated, but you get what I'm saying. It's like, it's, we live in a day where you don't know what's real. You're you're a hundred percent right. I saw a thing where this AI generated woman's making $11,000 a month. She's not even real. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. This is the world that we live in. 
right? This oh, it's just going to get worse, people. It's just going to get worse. Yeah, We're just in the beginning stages. And you're right. The humility, nothing will humble you like getting choked out. <laughs> you know, I wrestled. I wrestled for years and I know all about getting choked. Uh, yeah. It's squeezed. It's intense. It's very intense. I've taken some Brazilians. I've taken some BJJ uh, classes, but I never stuck with it. I should. Now my big fear is hurting my wrist. I, I mean, if you're still going to BJJ, I mean, how do you feel about your wrist? Do you wrap it up, quadruple, put a metal no, bar on it? I've done it for so long. It's like, no, you know, and and the, the thing is you, you, you just, you have to practice humility even even at this level, um, it took me 14 years to get my black belt. Oh, you're a black belt? Yeah. Wow. Congrats. Thank you. That is, that is so fucking hard. People listen to this. Getting a black belt in BJJ is like getting a doctorate. It really is. It takes so many hours, so, so many in years to get that. Good for you, buddy. Thank you. Yeah. And but, but what I'm saying is that even at this stage, you still have to practice. You have to practice humility even more because you don't want to get caught up in like, oh, I'm not going to tap because I'm a black belt. Like, dude, I have to work tomorrow. If you if you're locking up an arm bar on me, I'm tapping, man. Like, I got to go to work and and provide for my family. It'd be different if I was training to be in the UFC, right? That's different because then you got to you got it. There's a different level of intensity. For me, I do jujitsu because I I've loved it for so long. I started in 2005. I've loved it for so long before it was cool. Yeah. And it's, it's just a, it's just been a part of my journey and I've learned so much from it, but humility is probably the biggest thing that I've learned from it. Because if you're not good at losing in jujitsu, you will not last because <laughs> you'll come in and get choked out by like a eighth grade girl and then walk home feeling like half the man you were before you walked in there. <laughs> Have you ever um, trained with any high profile individuals? high profile like celebrities or like yeah fighters. yeah like rolled with them or any of them well my my professor himself he's kind of a legend in the sport because do you know who shogun hua is of course from uh okay so shogun hua got his black belt from my professor my What's professor professor's name nino shambri so nino shambri he used to fight in pride back in the day, like in Japan, it was like the Japanese version of UFC. And so he had a couple fights in pride. But before that, he was the jujitsu coach for Shogun for like, uh, Hua. he rolled with the, the Noguera brothers. And he, um, he was like the uh, jujitsu coach for a lot of the Brazilian guys. Um, I know he helped Vanderlei. He's friends with Anderson Silva, like just all those guys and his jiu-jitsu is at a very very high level like when i train with him i'll put it this way when i roll with most black belts i feel like a black belt i feel like okay you're gonna catch me or, or i'm gonna catch you and it's like okay i feel like i feel good when i train with my professor i'm like is this my first day doing jiu-jitsu because you just like treated me like like i just walked in the door as a brand new white belt and i don't even know how to tie my belt you know he's just <laughs> on a different level and so that's the thing that intrigues me about jiu-jitsu so much is that you're never going to learn it all and so you just have to keep pushing keep in, in improving your your game different parts of your game my wrestling by the way sucks so you could teach me a lot about that and so you know that's a that's a different part of my game that i haven't even really addressed yet um but it is a beautiful way to learn um how to lose yeah yeah i agree with that it, it's like the only difference between a white belt and a black belt is a black belt just kept showing up. Yeah. 
anybody could become a black belt. You just, it's just going to take time and consistency. And doing it when you don't want to, right? And, and I had training. one rule. So I had one rule and my rule was, or the only time I, I had to go to jujitsu was the days that I didn't want to go. That was my rule. <laughs> so I'd get home from work, right? I'd get home from freaking doing engineering and looking at Boeing drawings all day long. And I'd be like, my brain's fried. And I'd sit down on the couch and I like want to go crack open a beer or something. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to go to class tonight. And soon as the words come out of my mouth, I'm like, damn it. <laughs> so I get up. Hey, that's well, discipline. Yeah. That's discipline. How do you feel about Gordon Ryan? He's on a level. Uh, like, so what I think about Gordon Ryan is first that his secret power is John Danaher. Yeah. yeah. John, John Danaher, for those of you who don't know, was the coach for guys like GSP. But he's known in the martial arts community as one of the, if not the greatest mind in martial arts. He's like a real genius. He's a he's a legit genius. He was a philosophy major from New Zealand, right? And he came to New York in the early 90s or late 80s, early 90s um, to go to school for philosophy. He ends up becoming a bouncer at a bar where they were showing these UFC early UFC fights. He's, he gets, um, you know, all like stoked on the idea of this skinny little guy named Hoist Gracie, you know, choking out these guys two, three times his size and ends up finding Henzo Gracie and learning Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu from Henzo Gracie, gets his black belt under Henzo Gracie, and then applies all of his Professor X genius into Jiu-Jitsu, learning Jiu-Jitsu and teaching it. And that guy has produced literal world champions both in UFC and now in in just straight jiu-jitsu and I think he's the and not I think I know he is because Gordon is is straightforward about it you know he talks about yeah, like yeah he's, open. I, yeah he's open about it so he's the real genius but now in the same way like you know we teach SMP students are only going to go as far as they as they take it right and so Gordon man hats off to that dude because I've I've followed him since the very beginning since he was like a purple belt and I because I started noticing him he would he would pop up on YouTube and and Instagram and whatnot and and I and I would see like just that he was starting to win like these competitions super early and it was back when the Danaher death squad had a bunch of guys Eddie Cummings and all those different dudes and he was just a standout now he dude it's he's just on a he's on a different planet that guy yeah. that guy is on a different planet yeah for sure he would be for sure if i rolled with that guy he would mop the floor with me 100 <laughs> percent. i was just say i just wish uh john would get smp dude i've i've dm'd him. <laughs> john denher i dm'd him. I'm like, hey, I'm a I'm a Nino Chambri Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt. Like, I would love to hook you up. Like, he never for free. <laughs> yeah, he never responded. Yeah, because that would be huge, man. Like, if if John Danaher got SMP, it 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 would be huge in the SMP world. There's so many guys. I've hit up with quite a few actually known bald as a, like uh, Jiu Jitsu black belts. I can't I can't say his name yet, but one's kind of like thinking about it. So we'll Good. see. Keep pushing it, man. Keep pushing. I yeah. think any big, big profile or anybody who's got a little bit of pool who gets SMP is only going to help us all. It's only going to exactly. help us all. 
Exactly. A lot of people ask me, why is it that I train people? Don't, don't I feel like I'm training my competition? You know, and I say my answer to that is um, SMP is not super known yet. And uh, and a lot of what it's known for is bad work. And I want to do my job to ensure that there are good artists out there giving us all a good name. And so if one of my students or one of your students who does great work gets noticed by someone, it's only going to raise the tide for all of us in the industry. Because if, if there are people out there who are bad teachers and they're producing horrible students who do crappy work, it's going to hurt us. So for me, it's like, hey, someone's going to train them. And I want to make sure that I at least do my part to, to help um, ensure that there are good up and coming artists out there that give the entire industry a good name. I love that. I love that. You're right. Everything you said, spot on, spot on. All right, Kat. So we're going to start wrapping this up. We went 42 minutes over, but that's okay. I could have kept going another hour and a half, kept talking about, 50, you know, everything. We'll have to do it again. How can people find you? What's your uh, contact information? Um, Inkheads, I-N-K-H-D-Z. Um, that's me on on Instagram, but also inkheads.com. Those are the two best ways to, to get a hold of me, um, whether it's procedures or training. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm e easily accessible and I'm, and you're gonna talk to me, like I'm a straightforward guy. I don't have somebody else, like my AI secretary that's gonna be talking to you. <laughs> I love that. That's a big deal. Cause I, I message people and I'll get that. And I get why they do that, but yeah. sometimes it could be annoying. Uh, yeah, me personally. Okay, that was great. So stay on here, cat. <laughs>